Uh, I don't get to say it enough how much it means to me that you allow me the opportunity to stand before you uh, and to do this for you every single week. It does mean a awful lot to me. Uh, as was read for us, we're in Mark chapter 6. This is a sermon that I wish it was our custom to take 60 minutes for a lesson rather than 35 to 40. It is impossible to deal with all the beauty uh, that is found in the, this text. Uh, we might read the feeding of the 5,000 and think, well, we know everything about that. Pretty straightforward, pretty basic. I hope to shatter that into pieces uh, for you this morning and show uh, that I don't even have enough time to deal with all the things that I would like to deal with in this passage. Uh, it will be my hope that perhaps in a future Wednesday night I can trace back into here uh, and come back into some of these. If you have been with us on the Sunday nights in Exodus and Numbers, uh, the things I will not be able to say, this text will explode though. It will absolutely, I'm just going to throw the seeds out there and you're going to get to run with it. Uh, because this is, this uh, parable, not parable, this miracle is, is heavy. Uh, with Exodus imagery. It is heavy with Exodus and Numbers and Isaiah, uh, and we're going to get to see really the the beauty of that. Uh, as I've tried to beat into our heads over and over again, so often is our tendency to read uh, the gospel accounts and try to take the events, put them in a blender and get one single uh, passage. That's a terrible thing to do. Uh, Mark's recording of the feeding of the 5,000 is quite distinct from the other accounts. In fact, this is one of the few passages where all four accounts record. And this is one of the feeding of the 5,000 and yet all four are different. And God didn't do that so that we would go by a harmony of the Gospels and go, okay, let's make them all fit together. There are some really great things that Mark wants you to see that only he says and the other accounts do not and is weaving for us a beautiful picture of, of who Jesus is. It's fairly notable how it begins that the apostles in verse 30 come back to Jesus telling all the things that they have done. That harkens back earlier in the chapter where they have been sent out on this commission and they are able to cast out demons and they're to go into the villages and proclaim the gospel. If anyone receives them, then they would stay. And if they would not, shake the dust off their feet and go on into the next village. They come back and and verse 31 is a pretty staggering declaration that Jesus says, We need to get away by ourselves. And the reason why in verse 31 is many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. You can imagine the intensity of the teaching that's going on. Jesus tells the disciples, we we need to go rest. We need to have a moment. And and that's what they're about to do. In fact, it says in verse 31 that we're going to go to this desolate place. That's an unfortunate English rendering because that's the word that we've seen an awful lot in Mark. That is your wilderness word back in Mark 1. We need to go to the wilderness. And we need to have some alone time and we're going to have some things happen. But as we try to get away and rest because we have no time to even to eat, you'll notice in, in, in verse 33, people see them moving along in the boat as they go along. And everybody starts racing him down the shoreline and gets ahead of him to where he's going to end up. What would be your response to that? I think I would get out of the boat and go, guys, come on. 
We can't even eat around here. We need at least a couple hours. If you'll come back at 2 o'clock, we can probably work out some more miracles, but we are exhausted. Notice what Jesus says there in verse 34, the recording of us. And when He went ashore, He saw a great crowd and He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He began to teach them many things. This is a beautiful picture of Jesus. And all the exhaustion and all the running, they come out of the boat and there's the crowd right there waiting for Him. And it tells us there that Jesus has compassion upon them, that He sees them to be like sheep that do not have a shepherd. And that image is a loaded term. This this is a rich, rich term. In fact, tonight's lesson in Numbers is going to jump off of that phrase because that's also in the book of Numbers. But we won't do that. Come back tonight. We'll deal with what Exodus does with all of this. This is a representation of the character of God. If you remember when we were in the book of Exodus, when God describes Himself, what is the picture that He gives? As He passes before Moses, and the Lord says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This is who God is. And this is a picture of Jesus as coming as God as He looks upon the people and His feeling is not frustration, it's not ire, it's not anger, it's not, would you just give me a break? It's not, leave me alone, I'm so sick of you. His feeling for the people is compassion. When He looks at people, He has compassion for them. That'd be my first 30 minutes I wish extra I had. Let's talk about that, but I won't. But that's a beautiful picture. That's the very heart of God. What a picture of who God is. Compassionate when He sees His people. A compassion that we need to have. So we look out into the world and see sheep without a shepherd. It's a beautiful picture of what we are called to do as we see God showing compassion for His people. But what then is particularly interesting about that phrase To see them like sheep without a shepherd is a common term that is used by the prophets. One of the things the prophets will say over and over and over again is that Israel is like sheep who have no shepherd or they have worthless shepherds or the shepherds have scattered the sheep. There's all of those images used over and over again. I'm giving you a handful on the screen of the different prophecies that describe sheep being scattered, the representation of Israel. And in those passages, it's a condemnation of Israel's leaders. And for Jesus then to come along and look upon the crowd and see them like sheep without a shepherd is yet another condemnation of the present leadership. They're not doing the job that they're supposed to do. They're not leading the people. They're not feeding the people. They're not guiding the people. They're failing. That's one of the reasons why the people are so attracted to Jesus. And for Jesus to look upon them and say they're like sheep without a shepherd is a devastating critique upon the state of Israel at that time that there is no spiritual leadership, which is what you see Jesus doing 
as he condemns the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders over and over again. You're not leading the people right. He would pronounce woes to them and say, you're the blind leading the blind. You're causing people to fall into the pit. You're doing all of these kinds of things that are hurting the people of God rather than helping the people of God. And Jesus has come along to reverse that. In these very passages, as well as other prophecies, when the prophets condemn the leadership of Israel, you might remember that they'll turn around and say, but there's going to be a good shepherd who's going to come. There's going to be a leader who's going to arise. He's going to lead the people in justice and righteousness. And he's going to be able to accomplish what God has wanted for the people, which is why the Scriptures open over and over again picture Jesus as this image of being this good shepherd in contrast to the prior spiritual leaders who implicitly are bad shepherds. This one has come and he is doing the good work of a shepherd. He is a good shepherd who has compassion for his people, who leads his people. It is an image that I know that we we appreciate. If I were to ask you, what is your favorite psalm? My guess would be somewhere in the top three would be Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd... So I will not lack anything. He leads me besides still what this whole picture is given there. This is what the Lord is. The Lord is the true shepherd. The Lord is the one who has come to lead the people. And the prophets like Isaiah spoke well of there was going to be a day where God was going to turn His anger away from Israel and instead He would have compassion on them and He would lead them. He would lead them like a shepherd. Listen to the imagery like in Isaiah 40 in verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. But now listen to this imagery. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is what the prophets were looking for is one day there is going to be one to come and he's going to care for the flock. And He's going to lead them and feed them and guide them and have compassion on them and show them mercy. He's going to bind them up. We could bring in Isaiah 61 and, and bring up, bind up the brokenhearted and, and accomplish this great work. The ones who had led Israel in the past failed in that. They led for selfish means. They promoted themselves and didn't care about God's people. And so those prophets said one day there was going to be a shepherd who will come and he will rescue the flock. He will lead the flock. He will feed that flock. And if you'll notice in Mark 6.34, as he looks upon them and sees them like sheep without a shepherd, it says there he began to teach them many things. He now teaches them the things that they need to know. He will be the shepherd. He will be the one to lead them. And now what happens next is 
what sounds like compassion on the disciples part. Verse 35, the disciples come to him because it's late and they say, this is now again, same word wilderness. We're in the wilderness and you need to send them away so that they can get something to eat. And you have to love what Jesus simply turns around and says to them. Verse 37, you give them something to eat. What's the problem? Now, we've got thousands following us, and I know that we were trying to have a little getaway for a moment in this wilderness, but you give them something to eat. And listen to the disciples' response. Verse 37, they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? What you are asking for is the impossible. How can you possibly tell us to feed all of these people? Now, if you've been with me Sunday night, this was ringing a bell. When God has a bunch of people who need to be fed, He tells Moses, go feed all those people. And what does Moses say? Where am I going to get all the meat to eat? And I can't begin to do such a thing like that. We're relating right back to the book of Numbers. Here is this imagery of how is it going to be possible? And God's answer is, I have the power to do it. My arm is not shortened. I am able to feed all these people. I will care for all these people. And now the scene resets again. We're in the wilderness. And Mark says, Jesus says, feed those people. The disciples go, that is impossible. But Jesus then turns around and just says, well, what do you have? What loaves do you have? So interesting, the highlights on the bread. Uh, We have five loaves and two fish. And notice the picture is that he's going to sit them down and prepare to feed them. This is again what the prophets were proclaiming is that when the Messiah came, when God arrived, he is going to provide food for them and he is going to satisfy them. The imagery is shown for us in Exodus and Numbers. God provides for his people. You know, think about that for a minute in the wilderness. There's 40 years. And did they have to go figure out where they were going to go eat? You know, here they go. Okay, we're waking up today. We need to go hunting over here somewhere and try to find some animals or some vegetation. No, God just provided for them. There is this imagery of in redemption, in the exodus, in salvation. God is going to provide for His people. Jesus comes along and here are people who refuse to be turned away. Jesus says, we need to go to a desolate place. Let's get in the boat. You know, we need some time to ourselves. And these people just follow him. And they don't get in the boat. They just run along the sea. They're going to meet him over there. And Jesus is like, well, we'll feed them. We'll take care of them. Again, the imagery of what God has come to do is he has come to bring satisfaction. He is going to provide the food that is necessary. He is going to care for them and give them exactly what they need. In fact, what we see in Psalm 23, we talk about this this picture of the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me besides the still waters and green pastures. It is interesting that in the middle of the wilderness, Mark goes out of his way to make this simple statement in verse 39. He commanded them all to sit in the groups on the green grass. And I don't think that was to make sure that their clothes weren't dirty by sitting in the dirt. It's interesting that here's this green grass for thousands to sit in. 
There is grass in the middle of the wilderness. This is an image again of what God is saying was going to happen when He came. When Christ comes, there's going to be flourishing and life. The wilderness will turn into this forest and fruitful field and grasses. He is going to deliver and rescue and feed and satisfy and save. And you're starting to see those images percolate here in this physical miracle. That here is the one who is truly the good shepherd who looks upon his sheep, has compassion for them and says, we can be in this wilderness and I will be able to feed them and I'm going to cause this great reversal. And please notice the strength of what is said in in verse 42. And they all ate and were satisfied. That's only here too. That word satisfied. Jesus has come and all of the people who are here were satisfied. They are fed by God. God gives them what they need. And they're able to enjoy this meal with Jesus. It is a a beautiful picture and yet... Mark does not want you to stop right there. Now let me just stop the reading there because I didn't want poor Noah to have to read yet another pile of text. But notice the next word in verse 43 is immediately. (laughs) I'm going to connect what's about to happen next with what just occurred. And there's a very close connection. Verse 45, immediately... He made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got out, got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. But their hearts were hardened. Notice Mark connects. Can't separate this scene off. Notice what just happens here. Number one, we have read this. If you've grown up in the pews, you've heard it again and again. And I want to just underline it. The disciples are in the midst of a stormy sea and we're told that they are making headway painfully. They are struggling to get back across the sea. And the text says, and Jesus is walking on the water. We should stop there and say that for the next 30 minutes. Because we've all got too accustomed to that. He's walking on the water. Everybody, he's walking on the water. I'd like you to go try that. He's walking on the sea. That's staggering. Don't get used to that idea. He's walking on the sea. Just visualize that. Here you are struggling away and there's Jesus walking on the sea. And what's even more staggering about this picture is you'll notice in verse 48 it says, Jesus meant to pass them by. 
here's Jesus, and he's just going to walk right on by him. And like, hey, Jesus, help! <laughs> We're having a hard time getting across the sea here. The wind is blowing. We're going against the waves, and here goes Jesus. He just tends to walk right on by. And you might read that and think, well, does Jesus really care about his disciples? He's just going to leave them out there and struggle away when clearly he could just, you know, move them right along or stop the sea or, hey, come on, walk on the water with me. There's something very important about that phrase right there. That it says that Jesus' purpose was to pass them by. And not to think of that in terms of, well, he's just leaving them behind and too bad for them. That phrase is a powerful phrase. When Moses is concerned that God is not going to go with them the rest of the way on the journey into the promised land. Because of the idolatry that has occurred. And Moses is pleading with God, you have to go with us. And he desires to know in concrete, how will I know that you're going to stay with us and be with us? And Moses was requesting for the glory of God to pass by him. Let me see your glory. And remember what that text says is that that it was God's glory that was to pass by him. And that's not the only time that occurs. When Elijah is distressed, the text says that the Lord passed by Elijah. And you might remember, and it was in a wind and an earthquake and a fire. And it was the Lord passing by. Why is the Lord passing by Elijah and passing by Moses? What is the idea but the revelation of the glory of God? You can trust me. I want you to see who I am. I want you to believe in me. So Elijah... The Lord's about to pass by you. So don't give up. Get on back out there. Have all these prophets who haven't bowed the knee yet. To Moses, I'm going to pass by you. You'll understand who I am. That I am that compassionate, gracious God. And I'm going to be with you every step of the way because I give mercy to whom I say I have mercy. And I'm giving mercy to these people and I'm going to be with you. What's Jesus doing? What Jesus is doing is attempting to show His glory to the disciples. He's going to now pass by them. You are going to see who I am. But notice what happens. Do all the disciples in the boat go, Look at that, the glory of God on display. Jesus is walking on the water. What a Savior. What a Shepherd. Look at who we're following. No. What do they do? Ah! <laughs> They're afraid. We think we've seen a ghost. Which, by the way, take that back to Exodus. When God comes down and comes before the people, what do all the people do? Ah! Moses, don't ever let God show His Lord to us and talk to us again. You go. Same idea. And what is so interesting about the response of the disciples here is what Mark tags to them in verses 51 and 52. It says that when Jesus gets in the boat, the wind ceased. Again, let that resonate. And they were utterly astonished, for they did not understand about the loaves. Now please underscore this and be shocked like I am. Because their hearts were hardened. 
Did you expect Mark to say that about these guys? Whoa. You know, easy, right? You know, I'm not used to seeing people walk on water, give them a break, you know? I mean, come on. That is a staggering declaration. Their hearts were hardened. And notice it's because they did not understand about the loaves. They missed something in that miracle. They missed something. Which again reminds us that Jesus is not doing miracles for the wow factor. He's not doing it for entertainment value. There is a teaching that is supposed to occur in it. You're supposed to see something in what Jesus is doing in the miracle, and it's not supposed to be, wow, Jesus can make 5,000 people be fed with only five loaves and two fish and all of them be satisfied. That's not the point. But it seems to me that that's exactly what the disciples had taken away. Because Mark looks at this and says, if they had understood about the loaves, they would not have been astounded. They would not have been afraid. This would not have happened this way. They didn't understand about the loaves, and that's the reason why their their hearts are hardened. And I want us to think about this idea for a minute, because this is the big concept of what Mark wants us to see with the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water. Hardness of heart comes from not grasping who Jesus is and what He's come to do. Our hardness of heart comes from not fully understanding who Jesus is. And I want us to be amazed by that because we want to, you know, give ourselves a parachute and go, well, if I had seen Jesus, then I would have reacted differently. I want you to see there living with Jesus, walking with Jesus, listening to Jesus' teaching, and watching miracles happen, and Mark says they have hard hearts and don't get it. So, I don't think we've been any better. Don't think living in the first century would have helped any of us at all. Didn't help these guys. Wouldn't matter. They have hard hearts. They don't understand. They're spiritually dull. And that's the idea is that the spiritual dullness is what causes us to not understand who Jesus is. The problem ultimately is, is that they do not understand what Jesus is showing about himself. And faith was not going to come automatically to these disciples. You might notice that fear has been a constant replay in this book. Fear is an interesting declaration by Mark that fear is going to lead you to believe or not to believe, to have faith or not have faith. And notice this moment of fear is a problem because they don't understand who He is. It's not an automatic because they've been in His presence that they have this great faith. No, they are dull. They do not have this depth. They do not have this understanding. Mark uses strong words and says that they have hard hearts. Even though they heard Jesus teach, even though they saw the miracles, even though they've seen all of this happen right before their eyes, they have hard hearts. And so I just want to simply ask, what did they not understand? 
That has to be the big question looming over the text. It says they didn't understand about the loaves. Well, what did they not understand? What had they missed? What had they not seen? There are some really big ideas that I've tried to prep you for as we move through that. They didn't understand that Jesus was the shepherd who feeds you and causes you to lie down in green pastures. They didn't see that what Jesus is doing is coming forward before all the people and saying, I am the shepherd who has come to rescue you and to heal you. In fact, notice verses 53 to 56 as that section ends. He goes in and he's healing. I've come to rescue. I've come to heal. But let me make that point even finer. What Isaiah was promising what happened and what you see Mark highlighting and what occurs with these people is Jesus has come so that you will be satisfied. That if you understand who Jesus is, life satisfaction is found in Him. That's what's happening here. That's what they don't understand. They didn't see Him as the shepherd who leads them, who feeds them, who guides them, who causes them to have rest, to make them lie down, who turns the wilderness into the fruitful field, who offers to them life, who offers them rescue, who offers them everything that they need for life. They did not see Him as the all-satisfying God who has come to give them deliverance. They didn't see that in Him. And I want us just to consider ourselves for a moment. We spend far too much time looking to the world for satisfaction, for rest, for hope, and for healing. You and I can all raise our hands and say, and every time we do that, it fails, doesn't it? It never satisfies. It never gives what it promises to give. All of that pursuit, whether it be into sin, like sexual immorality, or whether it be into plunging after the things of the world, and I'm going to have a reputation, I'm going to get honor, people are going to give me notoriety, I'm going to have wealth, I'm going to have stuff, I'm going to find my joy, my satisfaction in my family, in my things, in my home, in my career. All the things that we press into in this world and say, this is going to make me happy, this is going to give me joy, this is going to satisfy. Every single time it fails, and what is our answer usually? Well, I didn't buy a big enough thing. Or I didn't get a big enough promotion. Or I need to move to another place or get a different career or a different wife or a different husband. Or if I had different kids or better parents. or We always just keep putting it out there a little bit further is what we say. The, The failure was not in the thing. I just didn't pursue it well enough and I'll pursue it stronger this time. And this time I'll be satisfied. And however long you've been alive, we've all been doing it. And however many years, say in your head how long you've been alive, that's how many years that's failed. So why do we keep trying it? Why do we keep pursuing it? 
Why do we keep thinking next time it's going to be better? Because we also have spiritual dullness and don't see that Jesus is the all-satisfying God. That's what the text is saying. You don't see what Jesus is offering. You don't see who he is. And you don't see how he can satisfy and he can meet all of those desires and all those needs. And because we refuse to see him as the one who fulfills those desires, what do we do? I got to go fill them myself. And so I'll go fulfill it in other people, in family, in, in sin, in wealth, in possessions, in career. We just go after it. And the reason why that's a fail, always, is because it is only God who can satisfy. The disciples did not understand about the loaves. They didn't understand what Jesus was saying about who he is. What he's come to do, how he's come to rescue. God is saying, I will provide for you. I will give you what you need and I will be your all-satisfying God. But you have to see me as that. And if you don't see Jesus as that, you will never enjoy or appreciate him and you will never be satisfied. If your pursuit of God has been empty, if it has been like duty and responsibility and something you have to do, I submit to you it's because you haven't seen Jesus for who he is as he's presented himself. You're looking at him as some other object. The object of I have to go to church. Uh, The object of responsibility. The object of, well, I don't want to go to hell, so I guess I better do something. You know, that's always such a high, hot pursuit there. Nothing says love like, well, I don't want to be in trouble. Imagine saying that to your spouse all the time. Well, the only reason I do anything is I just don't want to get in trouble. Yeah, there's love. That's what we do with God. It's not a pursuit. It's not a love. It's not a devotion. I just don't want to go to hell. Well, that wins. Jesus is trying to get you to see who he is. Do you see who I am? Do you see what I am going to offer you? I'm going to end the lesson just by bringing in Isaiah 55. Just, just listen to what Isaiah says is going to happen. And this is what Jesus is fulfilling. Isaiah 55 verse 1. Come everyone who is thirsty. Come to the water and you without silver. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. Why do you spend silver on what is not food? And your wages on what does not satisfy. Notice the question. Why are you wasting your time in the frivolous pursuit of life? Why are you going after bread that does not satisfy? You just all admitted with me, we've all pursued it, it's not working. And Isaiah comes along and says, What are you doing? And we go, I don't know. I've got to stop doing that. And here's God's offer. I will give you something that truly satisfies. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. 
and you will enjoy the choicest of foods. Pay attention and come to me. Listen that you will live and I will make a permanent covenant with you on the basis of the faithful kindness of David. In simple short, here's God saying, I am providing what you need. We are spiritually dull if we don't see it. And he said it about his 12 disciples. They didn't understand about the loaves. And that's why they were afraid. They had hard hearts. I read that and go. And that's the whole point of what this is getting at is we have to understand who Jesus is. Jesus is not a religion. Jesus is not a Sunday activity. Jesus is not some kind of thing that we do on the side and then we'll get back with it and, you know, okay, Monday through Saturday is for me and that kind of thing. The pursuit of Jesus is an understanding that there's not life or satisfaction anywhere else. And if I may be so bold to say, if you don't find satisfaction in Jesus, you're not doing it right the way you do it. You're not doing it right. And to reevaluate what you're doing in your pursuit of God because you're not doing it right if you're not finding satisfaction. You're pursuing it for some other means. You're still trying to be satisfied by the world. You're still trying to find your hope and joy and comfort in something else. You haven't put it in Him. And it's a strong warning that's given to the disciples here. Do not have hard hearts. Being spiritually dull and having hard hearts comes from not seeing who Jesus really is. He's come to rescue. He's come to give you life. He has come to be the one that gives you satisfaction in this life. But you've got to cast off all those other pursuits. Come to me and live, is what he's saying. See what I'm about to offer you. I can give you life in the wilderness. I can give you green grass in the wilderness. I can give you food in the wilderness. I can care for you. And he's proved it again and again and again. Not only here in this account, when we go back to the Exodus, caring for his people in the midst of the wilderness. He gives food. He gives life. He gives all that you need. But we have to see him as that kind of God. I want to encourage you today to think about your place before God and how you perceive him. Is He the all-satisfying God to your life? And does it reflect in the fruit of your choices that you make? Is your hope in Him? Or have you put your hope in something else? We are here to help you in that. I believe this is a, a terrible difficulty in our culture today. Because we're so easily satisfied with the prosperity and wealth that we enjoy. We have, we have air conditioning. We have TVs. We have cars and comfort galore. And we just don't need God because look at all the things that we have. We've got it made ourselves. Thank you, Lord. We're doing just fine. We can't allow the things of this life to cause us to have dull hearts. 
forget that everything we have comes from God, that what we have in spite of our dullness is God's care and provision and goodness and graciousness in spite of ourselves. Look at your life. Turn away from living for self and turn away from the pursuits of the world and seek him with all of your heart. If you are not a Christian, if you haven't given your life to Jesus, if you haven't been immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, if you have not called Jesus your Lord and Savior, that you will follow and obey, we want you to do that today before it's too late. We have water behind the curtain. We'd love for you to put on Jesus today and make him your master and your Lord. Maybe we can help you. Won't you come now while we stand and while we sing?